1: Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this bonus episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're actually featuring an episode from another podcast. It's called How to Lead a Sustainable Business, and it's hosted by Alana Weston, the chairman of the Selfridges Group. And in this episode, she speaks to Clover Hogan, who, at just 21 years old, is a leading climate activist and founder of Forces of Nature, a youth-led organization empowering Gen Z to step up rather than shut down in the face of the climate crisis. It's a really fascinating conversation, and you can find out more about the How to Lead a Sustainable Business podcast in the episode description.
2: Consistently in every meeting I've had with big business leaders, they've all said that their catalyst was their kid coming home at the end of the day and saying, Mom, Dad, Auntie, Uncle, what are you doing about climate change?
1: Hi, I'm Alana Weston, Chairman of Selfridges Group. Welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business the podcast where I speak to the pioneers who are driving us towards a greener future. Today, I'll be speaking to activist Clover Hogan, the 21-year-old founder of Force of Nature. Clover has highlighted one of the hidden side effects of climate change, the rise in eco-anxiety. At age 16, as she was lobbying decision makers at the Paris Climate Meeting, she realized that feelings of powerlessness were undermining the ability to make change happen. She made it her mission to mobilize mindsets and to empower Gen Z to step up rather than to shut down in the face of the climate crisis. After graduating from the Green School in Indonesia, Clover worked with Impossible Foods on youth strategy and advised multinationals at the consultancy Bolands She's worked alongside the world's leading authorities on sustainability and consulted within the boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies. To begin with, I wanted to get a sense of what set her down this path towards environmental activism.
2: My real catalyst came as a little girl growing up in Australia's tropical North Queensland, literally fishing frogs out of the toilet and dodging snakes that hung from the ceiling. I was very lucky in that for me, nature was never an other. It was just a really integral part of my lived experience. But when I was 11, I started watching documentaries. I watched Al Gore's an Inconvenient Truth. I watched The Cove. And suddenly the very foundation upon which I'd kind of built my identity and I'd built my sense of self was crumbling before me as I realized the extent of exploitation, as I realized that this thing that I loved so dearly was under enormous threat. And yet in amidst that kind of despair and overwhelm, I saw people on the front lines. Filmmakers, journalists, activists, policymakers. And I made a very definitive kind of decision that I wanted to commit the rest of my life to this thing and to being a voice for the voiceless. A few years into my kind of activism, when I was 16, I was a student lobbyist at COP21. Lots of politicians, business leaders coming together. And for the first time, I was kind of in the belly of the beast. And I felt so overwhelmed by the system that for the first time in my life, I felt powerless. And I realized in that moment, having worked on climate for a number of years, that the threat even greater than climate change, even greater than ecological destruction, was this universal feeling of helplessness, of being too small to make a difference. That was when this like fascination was basically catalyzed to understand our mindsets, to understand how we respond to these challenges and to figure out how to flip that switch in more people in the same way it had been for me when I was 11. And I was like, right, I want to commit myself to this. I wanted to understand how to ignite that in lots of minds around the world. So out of that force of nature was born. So we are a social enterprise. We try to solve this problem two ways. So we work with young people now around the world to really shift from this place of feeling powerless to realizing your power, realizing where you can make that difference. And we also work with business leaders and policymakers, people in established positions of power to invite in young voices and to create platforms for intergenerational exchange, because we really do believe that when we kind of bring together this like energy of youth with the knowledge of experience, that's when we can make incredible things happen.
1: Wow, that's a huge thing to take on. And, and so what role do you think business leaders need to play in moving this mission forward?
2: Yeah, business leaders have a massive role to play. I feel like as much as we've kind of been sold this narrative that it's up to individual contributions and individual responsibility, actually companies have a massive role, right? And I'm the first to lobby for individual power and individual activism. I think it's incredibly important, right? Organizations are made of individuals, systems are made of individuals. And yet there is this very pervasive narrative that an individual's contribution is somehow equivalent to the many millions of individual contributions that make up a company and the decisions and the power that it has in changing the way it creates value and changing its supply chains. So that's why I am very passionate about working with business leaders, because if you can begin to create some of those changes at that level, the run-on impact from that is absolutely enormous. So I think there's an incredibly exciting invitation, incredibly exciting opportunity for businesses here to not just say, okay, we're going to do the bare minimum because, you know, there is no hope in another 10 years of incrementalism. We need to look to that vision of the future. We need to look toward where we're actually working and say, hey, we have an opportunity to be custodians of that and actually create it by bringing better value into the world.
1: It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I found we get stuck in this kind of circular conversation where business people say there's no consumer demand or um, why isn't the government doing anything? And so Mm. I'd really be interested to understand a little bit more your approach. You've called for system change. You've asked that directly of business. What piece of advice do you have for business people as as to where they might start?
2: Often companies I work with will start with what will look good to our consumers (laughs) um, and what will be perceived well, rather than where do the problems actually exist within our company. And so, you know, if I'm working with a company, for example, that is taking on plastic waste, they might set some super kind of audacious, ambitious goals, right, Um, of shifting their supply chain so that you know, within five to 10 years time, all of their products are recyclable. Now that's great. And maybe the consumer feels really good when they see that, you know, green stamp of approval on your product in the UK, where we've waged this like war on plastic, only 45% of that plastic actually ends up being recycled. So you might invest all of your time, energy, and resource into creating something that on paper looks super sustainable, and yet it's still out there choking a sea turtle, or it's out there adding to this environmental degradation. And so it's then up to that company to take responsibility for the full ecosystem of its impact. So naturally, we need to look at how those systems are interacting and we need to look at the role each and every one of us as individuals, as companies, as policymakers have in affecting these systems. And so, you know, definitely as a company, look at the impact that you're having right now. And again, don't just look at the pure manufacturing of that product or, you know, the resources that go into that service, but actually think about the entire ecosystem of that product. And then think on that macro level about which problems you want to take ownership of as a company. And rather than thinking about the end goal as your product, think about your product as actually a vehicle to deliver on a solution to that problem.
1: I mean, it's it's a huge ambition, I think, for any business leader to be truly proud of everything that they sell and every system that they operate in. And it is also really overwhelming. Mm. And um, And what's the risk that younger people are becoming anti-business?
2: I would start off by saying that a lot of young people are feeling really disillusioned. And it's maybe not talked about enough, which is why I want to bring it up because there is this very pervasive anxiety and overwhelm that comes from looking to people in positions of power and not seeing action at the pace and scale required. And so I would argue that, you know, that overwhelm comes not even from the scale of the problems, but from the inaction in the face of them and the distrust that comes from that. So a lot of young consumers today are very distrustful. Um, They have very high kind of radar for greenwashing for companies that are kind of doing all of the superficial stuff, but don't have that reflected in how they actually operate. You know, there might be a company with a very, um, like racially diverse ad campaign, and yet none of that is reflected in their hiring process. None of that is reflected in their talent. Um, to take a very simple example. So Young people are looking for companies that are authentic and companies that are actually willing to own their problems.
1: You mentioned inclusivity and you mentioned, you know, some of the sort of more performative aspects of some brands around that issue. How do you bring those two things together? How does diversity help us to solve the climate crisis?
2: Yeah, really good question. Um, I would start by saying that like uh our general approach to inclusivity cannot be about tick boxes. You know, it really has to come from a place of understanding and appreciating why it is important. And I truly believe that the best innovation comes out of a diversity of experiences, right? People who are experiencing problems in real time the reality is often you're quite far removed from the very people that you're trying to help or you're quite far removed from your stakeholders. And that makes for terrible problem solving because you're kind of operating within your own bubble and within your own silo. And so when you are trying to serve people, you need to go directly to them. In the context of the climate crisis, it's a massive wake up call. And I think Black Lives Matter has been a really important catalyst for conversation because We've allowed this challenge to be talked about in the context of solar panels and polar bears, and yet the climate crisis is about social justice, and we will not achieve climate action and climate solutions without centering social justice in every conversation, in every solution. And all of the research reflects that, right? If we look at Project Drawdown, the most comprehensive piece of research ever done into uh, solutions to avert climate collapse, we see that within the top 10 solutions are access to education for girls, right? Ensuring women have their reproductive rights, ensuring women have autonomy of their bodies, right? We're not talking about solar panels. And so the solutions have to be inclusive. They have to meet people where they're at. And in fact, by meeting the people who are already experiencing uh, the direct impacts of the climate crisis, of which there are now many, this is no longer a future challenge. We can develop solutions that are going to serve us much better and much more resiliently than, you know things that we kind of create in a laboratory that don't actually have any real world applications. So it's really important that you invite those voices into the room. And my passion is definitely getting young voices into those rooms. I can't tell you how many times I've been at an event or a panel or a session, which is about Gen Z, which is about mobilizing young people. And I'm the one token young person in that space. And I myself come from my own bubble of privilege, right? I can speak to my experiences, I can try to speak to the experiences of a generation, but I'm never going to be able to. And so we need to put the work in to ensure that a diversity of young people are in those spaces so that they're actually part of the innovation process and there's so much value that comes from that.
1: I couldn't agree more and I guess the real thing is how do you listen to them? You you know because older people always want to to tell younger people stuff. That's kind of how we're programmed as parents or mothers or leaders or, you know, how do we listen well? What advice could you give to leaders about listening? I mean, getting them in the room is the start.
2: Definitely. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I think you got it, which is to to not brush over that first step, which is just inviting young people in the room. And I think also not expecting brilliance from the get-go. Like this was one of my great learnings And great gifts of working with John Elkington, um, who is just this champion and legend in the environmental and business world. Um, When I was working with him, he would invite me into these conversations with business leaders. I, of course, at the ripe age of 18, had a lot of imposter syndrome And so a lot of the time I was just a fly on the wall and I was just there to kind of absorb and to understand what was happening and to understand these dynamics and how change actually happens in those spaces. And John never like turned to me expecting me to come up with, you know, the perfect plan or the perfect solution, but he realized that, He was there to mentor me and really take me under his wing so I could see that bigger picture. And that is what kind of enabled this exponential learning curve to then synthesize and formulate my own ideas, my own innovations. So the first step, definitely invite young people in, allow a window into those operations. And as a business leader, it's critical that you expose your own vulnerability as well. I think there's a very dominant type of leadership today, which is having to know all of the answers and having to have a clear strategy, right? And this is very difficult in the context of climate change, in the context of existential, unanticipated challenges, because they are by their nature, unpredictable none of us have the answers. None of us have the clear, you know, step-by-step action plan. And so that means that as leaders, we need to be able to look in the face of that messiness and say, we're going to try a thing and we're going to hope that it works, but actually I don't know. So I'm going to invite in the experts. I'm going to invite a lot of creativity and we're just going to run with it. But that has to come from a place of vulnerability. And when you do that to the young people within your organization, or you invite young people in, it's going to create incredible amount of trust because they too will be able to open up about their own vulnerabilities and from that space you can create a shared intergenerational leadership that is able to navigate this increasingly turbulent future without losing sight of what we're actually working toward.
1: Now, I think that's, that's really powerful stuff and I, I've been interested actually when you start to look at this call to action from, from Greta, from people like you, from, you know, Attenborough, everybody. But I can see why that's making people anxious. And, um, I feel anxious most of the time, to be honest. Do you feel that young people are more connected with their spiritual health as well as their mental health in a way that, say, my generation were more connected with their their purely physical health. How do you see that evolving?
2: Yeah, I definitely feel that we're much more open (laughs) than previous generations um, in talking about our mental health. In the environmental space, burnout is super common because people are kind of like working themselves um, into the ground and not kind of creating any space to check in. And, you know, they're not getting out and spending time in nature to remind themselves of like the very thing that they're kind of fighting for. And so it's something that we really advocate within Force of Nature is this idea of the duality between outer activism and inner activism. And like really checking in and dialing in to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And to have a sort of Healthy distance from the problems that you are trying to solve so that your identity and sense of self worth is independent of whether you solve those problems. Because, like, one of the huge challenges with climate change is that we care so deeply that we wrap our sense of self up in something that is fundamentally outside of our control. And that is not sustainable, it's not realistic. And Only in shifting away to actually relinquish attachment to outcome and attachment to expectation are we going to be able to, you know, cultivate the resilience that this challenge requires.
1: I mean, things have been pretty complex for young people the last six months. And and I guess, you know, they've had some pretty heavy blows, you know, disrupting their education, uncertainty about jobs. Now, well, in this country, you've got the rule of six, which is um, probably not going to be that thrilling to most young people. They could be forgiven for putting climate change to one side while they worry about other things. Hmm. How will they continue to be engaged with the issue? What What's needed and, and, and how hopeful are you that they'll remain engaged?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say, if anything there has been the opposite effect just based on the conversations we've been having with young people, which is that instead of kind of shifting their attention, the pandemic and all of the challenges that come with it have heightened their existing climate anxiety. And a large part of that comes from the fact that with COVID in varying degrees of success, there has been this kind of societal wide mobilization. And suddenly we're like, oh, okay, this is how we respond to an emergency. And it was something that really struck me as countries started shutting down. I was like, these are the kind of changes that we've been demanding in the climate space for many decades more than I've been on this planet. So what is getting in the way of that kind Mm -hmm. of political will? And so I think if anything, young people are more concerned and that much more concerned that climate has kind of been placed on the back burner when within the wider scheme of things, it poses a much more existential challenge, right? You know, we look at the societal kind of upheaval that has come from, you know, immigration around the world and the negligence in leadership and how we've left people behind. Now, a lot of predictions show that climate change could create a billion migrants by 2050. That's not a, that's not a far way away, right? So we're anticipating these huge problems. And I think if anything, they're adding to our overwhelm. But of course, there are lots of other kind of day to day problems. And I realized that, you know, thinking as much as I do about climate change is a real privilege, right? Because I'm not facing some of those other challenges. I'm not facing the problem of, you know, how to get food on the table at the end of the week. I'm not facing the challenge of having a roof over my head, right? Which is the reality for so many people around the world. And so I think it's wrong to look to them and say, okay, well, it's just as much your responsibility to take action on this thing, which is still ultimately not affecting your current way of life. But I feel that young people that we work with have this incredible kind of global empathy and they are experiencing eco-anxiety often on behalf of young people who are already experiencing the impacts of climate change. So, you know, for the wider UK public, it might still largely be this kind of nebulous thing that might be happening 10, 20 years in the future. And yet young people really already appreciate the urgency of this problem. So I think if anything, again, it comes down to how we create that narrative of invitation. And rather than climate change kind of being another thing that you have to add to your list of things to care about, we actually see it as how is this a calling to create a much better society, a kinder society, a more giving society? Well, it's
1: very inspiring what you talk about. And I'd certainly love to continue the conversation. And um, it's absolutely so important that we address these things, but also that we collaborate, I think. And that we avoid these silos that kind of has got us into this situation in the first place.
2: It's very uplifting for me as a young person working in the space to have leaders like yourself who invite young voices in. I think it comes naturally to you, but you'd be astonished by how unusual it is to really invite those young voices. So I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity and um, yeah, excited to carry the conversation forward. Thank you, Clover. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
1: If you enjoyed my conversation with Clover, please remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a review and share it with anyone you think might find this series valuable. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Radio Wolfgang. The producer was Eli Block and the production manager was Katie Fuller. Thank you once again to Clover Hogan. I'm Alana Weston and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.
0: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.